Hello, and welcome to Nauticast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 99th episode of the Nauticast titled City of a Hundred Colors, an analysis of a Clash King's Daenerys 2, in which Danny arrives at our very, very favorite setting in a song of ice and fire. It's Karth, guys. Yay, fucking Karth. Wait, did you say that Heron was your favorite setting last week? Yeah, forget all that. We're all about Karth here on the Nauticast from now on. Oh, yay, Karth. I, I can't wait to do Karth this week and Karth in like four months from now. I think it's like Danny's next chapter is a long, long ways from, from this, this her second chapter. Oh, oh, the best sucks. thing we can say about Karth is that there's not very much of it. As always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Word of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archbishop June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the other, the other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zeta of Lyrian, Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, War of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamis, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Gook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedalica, Prince Matthew Pastarga, and Proud Soyboy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancing with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie of the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for his nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the They Dees and Gentle Thems, Lord Quint, Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not, serving as a spy for several unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Black Fire Stower conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council, Haldemar, the Boyder for T.Wow, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest. Of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H Town, Vedaris of House Colgarian, the First for Dame, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of Pestles, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender of Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Sean Wallace Sellier, and our two newest members of the Small Council. That's right, two new members of the Small Council Lord Adam T. and Tibbs the Great of House Catnaps. Thank you, folks, very much, and welcome to our new counselors. Thank you very much, folks, as always, and a special welcome to Lord Adam and Tibbs the Great. Mm, love the names. Love them, love them, love them. So, as always, our spoiler warning. So, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Dean, one of our High Lords, who asks, Hello, gents. With the likely imminent release of The Winds of Winter tomorrow, <laughs> next week, next month, I was wondering about the storylines that have been scrapped from the series. Tyrion's encounter with the Shrouded Lord or Arya's Bravosi adventures, do you think we'll ever get to see these? Examples of what could have been or events that were dropped for brevity as part of the editing process. As budding authors yourselves, is this something that a writer would reveal, or is the idea that once it's gone, it's gone? Regards, Dean. So what do you think about that, Jeff? You know much more about this than I do. You, you just always remember much more about this than I do. <laughs> has George offered to read the Shrouded Lord stuff before? Is it, has that just been requested? Or what's the history with that? Okay, so the history of this. So I'll, I'll go way back to 2007-ish. So in 2007, George R. Martin is desperately trying to get A Dance of Dragons done for publication that year, right? No, mm-hmm. no, absolutely. As we not. all remember, as we all remember, 2007, the year when Dance of Dragons was published. No, um, so the, the major issue that George was experiencing is that he takes Tyrion's four chapters they had written before he split Feast and Dance, and ends up expanding them to six chapters in total. So 
Tyrion's first leg of his journey in A Dance of Dragons becomes six chapters instead of four. One of the ways that he ends up expanding it is that he writes this series of events where Tyrion meets the Shrouded Lord, who he's heard about on the, the voyage down from the Broin. He ends up finding that this chapter is not going to take him in the direction that he wants the story to go for Tyrion. So he ends up deciding to kind of rewrite it so that the Shrouded Lord scene essentially becomes a, a short dream sequence, which, which opens Tyrion's sixth chapter from A Dance of Dragons. Even though the chapter was fully written, had been edited, and was polished in George's mind, that Shrouded Lord chapter, he has said that he's never going to publish it in a book in A Song of Ice and Fire. But he has said that as recently as a few years ago, I want to say like 2016, 2017 maybe, that he might find some place to publish it or it'll come out after A Song of Ice and Fire is finished. And, you know, if The Winds of Winter ends up, you know, taking longer and longer and longer there might be increased pressure by his publishers, at least, to put something out there, George. Come on, man. It's been almost 10 years since since The Dance of Dragons. Put something out there. I'm not speaking as myself because I'm patient. I'm speaking as his editors and his publishers who are less patient than I am, I imagine. So what about you? So you actually have a new book that you're writing. I've read the first couple chapters of it. It is excellent. I am eagerly looking forward to reading more of it. I have only have part one in my hands right now. I'll reveal no plot details or no spoilers. But I'm curious, is there like things that you've been writing that you've been like, eh, that whole section, a whole character, a whole plot line, you kind of just put to the side and you decide that eh, maybe I'll use this for something else, but it just never matures into something that you end up using. Is that something that you found in your own writing? There are definitely scenes that I've discarded as I've decided like that's a kind of an immature like route for this character to go or like I have I come up with a great idea for later in a storyline. So like, okay, this earlier scene is going to make no sense now. So those scenes, I just have like a whole like, you know, folder full of those like random isolated orphan scenes, <laughs> uh, which would be great to end up in some kind of other other projects somewhere. But the the Bravosi stuff always stood out to me like that as a version of that in this storyline because bravos is so isolated and distinct from the rest of the story not only geographically but just in terms of tone and genre and, and just like the century that george is drawing from in his writing it's hmm. so different and i love it for that because i really love like venetian amsterdam inspired kind of kind of storytelling and more of that in fantasy i would love to see so i know you know george disdains fanfic and i know he doesn't have you know uh, the recently passed Christopher Tolkien and you know someone like that in line to to, to take over the, the the industry for him so to speak when he passes, but I would love to see more more Bravos in, in it's in a completely isolated context a whole book just about that and some sort of crazy you know shape shifting shenanigan spy cloak and dagger <laughs> plot set there uh, because I like the, I like the Bravo stuff we get I like it a lot I like I think more than most people but I, there is clearly the sense as in Karth I think that there are better stories to be told in Bravos so whether we're ever going to get them from George I don't know because it's it's not the kind of thing just one chapter you can read or just put out there it would be like a whole separate like storyline that I think he's talked about having a bunch of uh, Arya material he, he just doesn't have room for. So that doesn't... What do you think? I don't think that there's as much a graceful way to publish that as like yeah. a single chapter, right? I think it would be hard because George has said that he has enough Arya material. And this is interesting. So I was actually reading about this today. This might become a post someday down the road. We'll, we'll see. But George was saying as far back as 2010 that he has tons and tons of Arya material for... Arya material in Bravo specifically... That, you know, in Dance with Dragons only becomes two chapters. So we have to assume that a lot of the stuff ended up being cut to the Winds of Winter or exists in some format that we have yet to see or might never see. So in 2012, George has said that he had enough material for a whole novella set of Arya set in Bravos, And then I believe 
someone close to George said something within the past couple of years of he's got a, basically a small novel's worth of material for Aria material in the Winds of Winter. And I know we've got some big Aria fans in the in our among the, our listeners, and I'm sure you guys are just salivating at this thought of like having like a whole novel dedicated to Arya Stark. But uh, for me. <laughs> I mean, I'm not as big of a Bravos fan. I understand its purpose, its place. I understand all the thematic side that goes into Arya's storyline and why it's so important for her to be there prior to her going back to Westeros. At the same time, I do think there has to be some sort of slimming effect for these characters and for these chapters because George ends up getting lost, I feel like, in some spots like Bravos, mostly just Bravos, actually. It's just it's only just <laughs> Bravos that he gets lost in. And then we end up having like 15 chapters set in Bravos, and you know that's a quarter of the book for a book that's ostensibly about the story of Westeros and all the different characters of Westeros. So, I, you know, God bless George. He can write whatever he wants to write. That's fine. I'm never going to cr- criticize him for writing it. But I do think you know, just as a just a suggestion for George, one of our one of our listeners, if you would like to at any point, you know, trim some stuff down, maybe the Arya Bravo stuff is a good place to actually do the trimming. What do you think? Or just, or again, just like embrace fanfic and say, I have this cool location. There's stories I want to tell. I just don't have room for it. Go to town, talented people. Tell yeah. awesome stories in Bravos. I think that would, this would be a perfectly appropriate place for that. But yeah, I mean, Bravos and Arya stories, it's the innermost cave in the hero's journey. It's like, you know, the, the black hole. It's the point where you look into the abyss and pull yourself back, you know, somewhat transformed, but not entirely. It's the same thing that's going on with Sansa in the Eerie and Bran in Blood Raven's cave. The difference is. The Eerie is a place we're already familiar with and is directly tied into the politics. And Blood Raven's Cave is obviously a super important place for the magic as a whole. Bravos doesn't really have that import on the main plot. And the, where it does intersect with the world building is the Faceless Men, which is where, as we've said before, it's kind of shaky on the world yes. building. So yes. Bravos is not as successful in, in that regard. But anyway, thank you, Lord Dean, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions that we'll answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword patron or higher level at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also get 24 bonus Song of Ice and Fire episodes, five Fever Dream episodes, show notes, access to our exclusive Slack, and more. As we've talked about on Patreon itself and wanted to announce here, we've revised our current Patreon stretch goal. So, if we get 900 total patrons, we will do a full-out chapter analysis on my personal favorite chapter (laughs) in all of the Song of Ice and Fire, The Forsaken from The Winds of Winter. So if you like Jeff's wonderful synopses and theorizing about battle analysis, or you just love Euron's Eldritch Apocalypse and psychedelic drug-induced imagery like me, head on over to patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F to sign up for as little as $1 a month to get our full-out analysis of The Forsaken. It's not my favorite chapter in all of Song of Ice and Fire. That's Dance Dragons, Danny Ten. That's okay. And but I, That I is my the... favorite chapter in all of the published, published. Song there we of go. Ice and so I completely agree there. Absolutely. And as of this recording, we've got 59 patrons left to go before we hit our goal. And I hope it is sooner rather than later. But enough about Patreon for now. Let's turn our attention to Daenerys Targaryen. When we last left the Dragon Queen, she had wandered the Red Waste, nearly starving to death, before finding rest at Vase to Loro. But then Pyat Pri, Zaro, Zoendaxis, and the goat of a Song of Ice and Fire characters... <laughs> Can't even do this with a straight face. Quaith had shown up to take her to Karth, a setting that fucking sucks. Let's find out what happens to Daenerys Targaryen in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Daenerys 2. Daenerys Targaryen approaches Karth to men beating gongs, horns blowing, and an honor guard of camels coming out to greet her. Karth is the greatest city that ever was or ever will be, Priat Priya told her back amongst the bones of Ace to Laurel. It is the center of the world, the gate between north and south, the bridge between east and west, Ancient beyond memory of man, so magnificent that Sathos the Wise put out his eyes after gazing upon Karth for the first time, because he knew that all he saw thereafter should look squalid and ugly by comparison. Diddy knows that Pyatt is 
probably full of shit, which he is, but the city does look quite splendid. There were three walls that encircle Karth. The curtain wall was red sandstone, 30 feet high with animals decorating it. The second wall, 40 feet high with lovely scenes of war and slaughter, including, of course, killing infants, of course, adorning it. The final third wall, aka the porno wall, was decorated with erotic carvings that Danny tries to force herself not to blush at. The three gates of Karth are copper, iron, and the third has gold eyes. Children throw flowers and wear colorful clothing. Danny thinks that the colors missing from Bays to Laurel are all here in Karth. As for the Karthian themselves, Danny describes them this way. The Karthian lined the streets and watched from delicate balconies that looked too frail to support their weight. They were tall, pale folk in linen and samite and tiger fur, every one a lord or lady to rise. The women wore gowns that left one breast bare while the men favored beaded silk skirts. Danny feels barbaric in contrast, wearing her lion, skin, her lion skin cloak that Drogo gave her. She also knows that the Dothraki call these people milkmen, and remembers how Drogo wanted to sack the great cities of the east. Danny assumes that the Carthine assume her Dothraki are barbarous, and she hashtag problematically agrees with this assessment of how barbaric they must seem. God, Danny, stop! Don't do that. Pyat Pri ushers her Kalasar into the city, and they pay, and they pass a giant bazaar with trees and flowers blooming in the terraced walls above the market stalls, while the free market reigns supreme below. Zaro Zoadaxis rides up to her then, proclaiming that if Danny wants anything, it's hers. But Pyapri loudly states that the entire city is Danny's. By the way, come hang out at the Warlock's haunted house. Notice the house that I'm dying. It'll be fun. Right? No. Wrong. But Danny only desires the red keep at King's Landing. P.S. She doesn't want any of those gifts. She wants swords and ships to retake the Seven Kingdoms. Pyat's blue lips curl upward in a gracious smile. It shall be as you command, Khaleesi. Is, is that easy? Really? Karth is just going to give her ships and swords to retake Westeros? Okay, sure, sure. Pyapri then fucks off to do whatever he's doing when he's not acting like a fucking weirdo, and Zara warns Danny that Pyat is lying. But Danny asks why people seem, well, kind of on edge when they're talking with warlocks. As to that, Zara replies the warlocks once had power, but now they're just a bunch of navel gazers obsessed with their old image. And then Zaro goes to fuck off someplace, I guess back to his man's wherever. Well, with Zaro and Pyat now gone, Jorah tells Danny that she should avoid these guys, but Danny says they'll help her win her crown. Okay, maybe, sure, no. And Jorah for once isn't wrong when he says, Zaro has vast wealth, and Pyat Pri pretends it power. I would not linger here long, my queen. I mislike the very smell of this place. Sadly, for Danny, for us, Danny is going to linger here for the rest of this book. <sighs> Danny jokes, saying, maybe it's the camels that Jorah smells because of the Carthine, because the Carthine smell actually quite nice. But no, Jorah knows that sweet smells cover up foul ones. Interestingly, Danny realizes that Jorah is treating her like a, quote, bear cub, and she wishes she could love him better. But for now, Danny has access to Zaro Zoandaxis's manse. She had no idea how big Zaro's house would be until she beholds it, and boy, is it big. Maybe I'll rephrase that? Nope, just moving on. She notes that Illyrio's manse in Pentos was super small and squalid by comparison, and Zaro's POV for now is, Suka is Sukasa Mikasa. Everything that Zaro's is Danny's, including his slaves, yay! And it's all because Danny is the mother of dragons. Everyone is going to want to see those dragons and feast her as a result. And that's how it goes at first. Pyapri returns, kissing her feet with his blue lips, gifting her with some totally not drugs or a, quote, jar of ointment that he swore would let her see the spirits of the air. Yeah, those are fucking drugs. Disgusting. Moving on. And then, yes, at long last, Quaith shows back up. We've all been waiting for Quaith. Yay, Quaith. Beware, the woman in the red lacquer mask said. Of whom? Danny asked. Of all. They shall come day and night to see the wonder that has been born again into the world. And when they see, they shall lust. For dragons are fire made flesh. And fire is power. 
you, you want to clarify to that, Quaith? No? Oh, okay, great. Thanks for that. Jorah agrees with Quaith that after she's gone, but he doesn't trust her either. Why Jorah is the voice of reason in this chapter, I don't know, but here we are. Danny's a little bewildered by Quaith's cryptic statements given that Zaro and Pyatt were promising her the moon as soon as she arrived in Karth. Danny wonders if Quaith is, Miri, is a Miri Mazdor figure and decides that viewing hours for dragons are unavailable permanently. But now that Danny is thoroughly weirded out by Karth, she needs to get a real sense of this city. So she dispatches Rakaro out to head with some women in her Kalasar to get a good look at what's really going on inside the city. Meanwhile, Jorah needs to get his bare ass down to the docks to find information from sailors about what's going on back at Westeros. Jorah protests, but Danny tells him to get moving. He knows more languages than anyone else in her party, so Jorah finally fucks off. Now, finally alone, Danny strips down and goes to bathe in Zaro's pool. She wonders if the Red Keep has a pool or gardens. Fact check, no pool, but apparently Marcella maintains a garden that Sansa picks flowers from back in Game of Thrones. I looked that up. Don't worry. She lets the little goldfish nibble at her in the, in the water, liking their feel. She wonders if the Seven Kingdoms were as beautiful as Viserys told her, and that thought of home disquiets her. Maybe if Drogo lived, his Kalasar would have crossed the Narrow Sea by now. But the Dothraki were the second slaughter type, not liberators. Danny had no wish to reduce King's Landing to a blackened ruin full of unquiet ghosts. Oh, what a line. Uh, we'll come back to it. Danny wants to make a beautiful kingdom where people smile at her the same way they smiled at Ares? Yeah, okay. But she has to conquer before that happens. And then there was the problem of Robert the Usurper. He was always trying to kill Danny, and he was a good warrior. And he had those goddamn Usurper's dogs with him, the quote, cold-eyed Eddard Stark with his frozen heart, and the Golden Lannister's father and son, so rich, so powerful, so treacherous. Ugh. That Ned and Tywin would be grouped together, Danny. I mean, I understand where you're coming from, but ugh. Danny doesn't know how she'd overthrow all these men. She has no Drogon with her anymore and just a very small Kalasar. And yes, she has dragons, but they were small. And yeah, Viserys said that Westeros would rise for Danny, but he was a fucking moron and idiot. All those doubts make her shiver in the pool, and she, feels, and she feels irritated at the cold water, and now feels irritated at the fish nibbling at her. So she calls for her handmaids and a towel and her clothes. But amidst the irritation, she reassures herself that Karth means something. The bleeding star led me to Karth for a reason. Here I will find what I need, Danny thought, if I have the strength to take what is offered, and the wisdom to avoid the traps and snares. If the gods mean for me to conquer, they will provide. They will send me a sign. And if not, if not, I, is George writing a meta commentary against the narrative purpose of Karth within the framework of writing Karth? Because George R. Martin, if you are, great. You're a 5D chess master. Fantastic. Amazing. Wonderful. That evening, as Danny feeds her dragons, Jorah arrives back from the docks. And boy, does he have news. Well, actually, he's not the one who has the news. He brought someone with him to give the news. Kohoro Mo, a summer islander captain who speaks in the, quote, liquid valyria of the free cities. And Kohoro has a gift for Danny. A gift of news, dragon mother Stormborn. I tell you true. Robert Baratheon is dead. Outside her walls, dusk was settling over Karth, but a sun had risen in Danny's heart. Danny asked the clarifying question of whether Koro means actually dead, because yes, that can be a little confusing, and yes, that's exactly what he means. Robert was killed by a boar hunting, or Ned Stark killed him, or Cersei betrayed him. Regardless of the story, the king is dead, and now his, quote, son is king in his place. Danny had never looked upon the usurper's face, yet seldom a day had passed when she had not thought of him. His great shadow had lain across her since the hour of her birth when she came forth amidst blood and storm into a world where she no longer had a place. And now, this ebony stranger had lifted that shadow. 
But with Joffrey reigning and the Lannisters ruling in the boy's stead, Ned Stark also sees for treason, interesting, that this was the time to strike at King's Landing while everyone was fighting. Much as Drogo's Kalasar had fought each other after Drogo's death, she asks when Kahuro plans to sail back to Westeros, and he replies that he'll head back in a year or so. Disappointed, Danny wishes him well and thanks her for the gift. I have been amply repaid, great queen. She puzzled at that. How so? His eyes gleamed. I have seen dragons. Danny tells him to come see her in King's Landing after she's won her throne to claim a gift, and Kuro says he will, and then he leaves. Now alone with Jorah, the knight cautions Danny not to trust every sailor's tale. Also, she shouldn't really go around proclaiming her plans to everyone. Use some goddamn opsec, Jorah says with a very keen appreciation for irony. Danny starts to grow annoyed with Jorah's insistence at being a wet blanket. She's not a child, and she won't be treated as such. And Robert Seth changes everything. They're all fighting a civil war, so we have a chance. But Jorah says, no. Westeros has always warred against itself. This changes nothing. They have so many needs. Fleet, gold, army, alliances. And they have none of them. But Danny knows this already. Her internal dragon calming, she thinks, sometimes he thinks of me as a child he must protect. And sometimes as a woman he would like to bed. But does he ever truly see me as his queen? questions but still she's not scared and sure she's young but she believes herself to have the wisdom of the old crones and feels as young as the dragon she's also given birth burned drogo and crossed the red waste and the dothraki sea she is also the blood of the dragon when jorah says that viserys was the blood of the dragon too danny quickly corrects him she ain't viserys jorah quickly backpedals and says yeah 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 you're not viserys you're more like rhaegar yeah rhaegar he's the cool one and rhaegar died on the trident to robert baratheon even dragons die jorah said Dragons die. Danny stood on her toes to kiss him lightly on an unshaven cheek. But so do dragon slayers. And that is a Clash of Kings Daenerys too. Well, that was a chapter, wasn't it, Abbott? It's it's a chapter that exists in A Song of Ice and Fire. Karth is a source of frustration for me. Because with a handful of changes, it could have been one of my favorite parts of the story. And for the space of one chapter, namely the House of the Undying chapter, Daenerys 4 in A Clash of Kings... It is one of my favorite parts of the story. Elsewhere, not so much. Karth has a lot of potentially fascinating elements at play, but George doesn't really play with them. More to the point, he doesn't let us play with them. They just sit there being potentially fascinating. And so it becomes my least favorite part of the story. Overall, Karth feels to me like like the setting of a lesser fantasy series than A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, you know, when I first sat down to open my copy of A Clash of Kings up to reread this chapter, it took me a good three tries to actually get through a Clash of Kings Daenerys 2. That's not to say there's plenty of stuff to pull out of it, but that feeling that this feels like a lesser fantasy series is really apparent to me when when we're going through this chapter. And upon reread, too, and after finally getting through it, of course, with Theon's first two chapters of mine, much more easy to get through those, Karth reminds me a bit of the Iron Islands. You know, Danny going to Karth and Theon taking Winterfell they weren't things that were George envisioned in his in his pitch letter. So the plot mechanics for both locations are, like you were saying in those Theon chapters, they feel stitched on. But the character work George does with Theon, it more than makes up for the wonky plot mechanics. And unfortunately, it's just a bit different for Danny. I mean, we talked about the meta side in Danny's first chapter to Clash of Kings and about why George invented the Carthian and later Slavers Bay arcs for Danny. But here, you know, the character work, I mean, I think that 
the character work that George invents for Danny, it feels flat when compared against Danny Game of Thrones and even Danny's first chapter in Clash of Kings. It struck me that there's there's this there's a small moment in this chapter when Danny is dispatching Makaro to investigate Karth to let her know what's actually occurring beyond the image she's presented and the fine and the fine smells that she's smelling. And she tells him, "Tell me what you find. Take a bend with you and women to go to places where men are forbidden." It feels like some really great setup for Danny to find out that all the beautiful sights she's witnessing, the nice smells she's smelling, are all covering up the rot under the surface, as Jora kind of says. But either George forgot about Ricardo's investigation, or more likely George was kind of going through the motions as a writer because we never find out what happens with Ricardo and the, what the women discover in the forbidden places. It feels like a, just a big-ass checkbox of a chapter. Danny is duty, Danny's doing her due diligence. Check. Like you were saying, super fucking frustrating for this chapter. I'm sorry this is going to be a theme for this entire analysis. Or Clash Kings Danny too, as you can probably already see. If you love Karth, God bless you. You have the freedom. This is America. But in our opinions, in my opinion especially, thankfully George does course correct in some ways, come a storm of swords, dance of dragons in the Slaver's Bay arc. But I've already buried Karth before praising it. And so Shakespeare's going to have my ass. So what better <laughs> way to praise Karth than to lavish praise on the city itself and all the architecture and the wonderful things about the city? Yeah, where George unambiguously succeeds in Karth is the visuals, and that's not incidental. It's central to what he appears to be going for with this setting. I talked in the prologue to A Clash of Kings about how one of my favorite parts of this book is how George infuses it with a rainbow color palette to match the expanding story, and our introduction to Karth is a perfect example of that. Karth sparkles. Karth shimmers. Karth shines. This chapter is just overwhelmed with kaleidoscopic details that keep opening up into even more details. You got the gongs on the walls, the horns snaking around the people who were playing in them, the camels with their carpets of a hundred colors, the trio of magnificently carved entrance gates, the other gates shaped like snakes mating, the flower children painted head to toe, the latticework bazaar, the pool with the golden fish. It's just colors exploding off the page at the reader. You can practically smell the fragrances. Every element contributes to this enveloping aura of not just wealth, but beauty, sensuality, refinement, and transcendence. Everything in Karth is in its right place. I think that's a great point. I mean, as much as we're criticizing Karth already, George really splashes that color on there. Like you were saying, like the rainbow cloaks of Renly's camp are felt in Karth very strongly. And for me, like the walls, the imagery, the architecture, it's it's George's gift to me because George is basically describing Constantinople at its zenith. And because also Byzantine history was the focus of my undergrad studies back when I was an undergrad many, many years ago. Seemingly between A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings, George must have read a book or two about Constantinople and in the Eastern Roman Empire, commonly known as the Byzantine Empire, because... In Clash, we're starting to see George borrowing heavily from some popular history, historical conceptions of the city of Constantinople with the wildfire and Greek fire, Constantinople's boom chain and Tyrion's chain. But also parts of the city borrowing can be found in Carth, especially in the gates and the walls. You know, the three walls of Carth, as described by Danny, is similar to the Theodosian walls built by the Emperor Theodosian II, though possibly started during the reign of his father, Emperor Arcadius, in the 5th century. The Theodosian walls consist of a low wall, an outer wall, and an inner wall, with each successive wall higher the farther up you get. And this Theodosian walls were defended the city for nearly a thousand years before the siege of Constantinople in 1453 by the Ottoman Turks. You guys might know some of this history. This is some well-done stuff in their cannons. But of course, I would argue that the cannons didn't take down the walls. We could talk and argue about that if you're a big fucking history nerd like myself. Also, the, the gates of Carth are described as banded with copper, the middle with iron, the innermost was, studied with, was studded with golden eyes. And it's not one for one, but this kind of reminded me of the Golden Gate outside of Constantinople, the ceremonial entry point where the Roman emperors would proceed through at the end of a successful military campaign, or in Burke cases where a high foreign dignitary or pope or king would enter the city. 
And then we have Zaro expanding out from the ornamental gates to describe Karthus, the gate between the north and the south, bridge between east and west, like Constantinople, which sat on the Bosporus Strait going north to south and occupying space in both Europe and Asia and acting as a gate and bridge between the two continents. And most importantly for our purposes, Constantinople became the Caput Mundi, or capital of the world, as the city of, the, as the city of Rome declined in prominence. It was a statement by the Eastern Romans that the center of the world was the greatest city in the world, Constantinople. All other cities, all of the kingdoms, all of the empires orbited Constantinople. Piapri describes Karth as the center of the world, like you were saying, the city to shame all other cities. And while that's immediately undercut by Danny's skepticism, and will be undercut further as we go through A Clash of Kings, Danny also admits she's impressed by the sight of Karth. And how could she not be, given the harsh and sparse environment she was passing through in her first chapter in the book? She's gone from one end of the sensual spectrum to the other. Danny is Dorothy, stepping out of black and white Kansas into colorful Oz. As George writes, it's as if all the color bleached out of Vase Taloro was reborn with interest in Karth. And it's an interesting way of phrasing it, because it positions Karth as a kind of vampire, sucking the land around it dry. Its decadent magnificence is only made possible by the wasteland outside. So I think there's this question that's supposed to be running through the back of the reader's mind. Underneath the glamour, is Karth just a bigger city of bones? Is Vase Taloro like a vision of what Karth is really like, of what Karth is going to be like after all this, this magnificence has faded? And that's perfectly in line with the larger themes of A Clash of Kings, what we've said about Renly's army feasting while the people of King's Landing starve, or how Harren Hall stands in for the destruction of the Riverlands. It's also, of course, in direct contrast to how the Starks behave per the Harvest Feast in Bran Three. And Piatri really inadvertently gives the game away when he describes Sothos the Wise, who, quote, put out his eyes after gazing upon Karth the first time, because he knew that all he saw thereafter should look squalid and ugly by comparison. Like, that's not a good thing. I'm amazed this is part of his selling point for Karth, because when you think about that, that's terrifying. Karth is so beautiful that it blinds you, like staring into the sun. It's such a rewarding plane of existence that it saps you of your ability to live elsewhere. And we'll get more into that with Danny 3 and especially Danny 4 at the House of the Undying. But Danny 2 is about setting the trap so those later chapters can spring it. Here we see the face Karth shows the world. And it strives to be a perfected mirror image for that world, like Renly regarding Robert. A microcosm of the world, but better. Their walls cover the bases from animals to violence to sex. It's like human evolution in motion. Hmm. Each one in turn ushering our species into Karth, which is then our highest achievement. We got here. This is where we are at our best. Zerozo and Daxos's palace would dwarf a town. Even Illyrio, a man seemingly entirely composed of expensive rings, seems a pauper by comparison to the Carthine. As with Heron Hall last week, this grotesque hugeness to everything speaks to the outsized ambition and self-regard of the people who run this town. And also like Heron Hall, there is a distinct fairy tale edge to Carth. The way it emerges shimmering from the sands like a mirage, the bizarre otherworldly details around every corner, the false promises that hide cunning traps for the unwary mortal. There's that quote, everything the gods had put into the world was for sale. And that speaks, of course, to the worldliness of Karth, the sense that, yes, again, it's the center around which Planetos orbits, but I think George is also working in a subtle hint that every one in Karth is also for sale. <clears throat> Including dragons, too, right? I mean, it's also hinting that all those lavish gifts that Zaro and Pyatt are giving to Danny or promising to Danny are intended as legal tender for her dragons, right? Because they're for sale. Everything else is for sale in Karths, though the dragons are for sale, too, right? Right? And as Jorah is going to relate in Danny's third chapter, even the marriage ceremony involves sale, essentially. Carthine have a curious wedding custom, my queen. On the day of their union, a wife may ask a token of love from her husband. Whatsoever she desires of his worldly goods, he must grant, and he may ask the same of her. One thing only may be asked, but whatever is named may not be denied. 
And as Danny is going to find in Slaver's Bay, and as she's really going to find here in Karth, no one actually gives a fuck about her claim to the Iron Throne. They only care about the dragons, and they only care about gaining the dragons. It's a perfect test for her, this this last spot of, of civilization and refuge. This is a place where she can heal and decide who she wants to be. Now that she's come into her own as a protagonist, Karth has been almost presented to her as a test by the bleeding star that she was following through the desert. And George has clearly put a lot of thought into that and organized the themes and images of Karth to speak to temptation, seduction, fatal self-regard. You could almost argue that what we're seeing with Karth is every other storyline in A Clash of Kings like sanded down to its basics and suspended in isolation. That's why you get the copper in the gates, just like Renly. That's why you get the eyes in the gates, just like how Varus talked about King's Landing. It's every other element from the rest of the storylines kind of like soaked down to their like simplest elements. In a book about leadership amidst the intertwining political and magical expansions, Danny is explicitly setting out to challenge and improve her leadership skills in Karth by running a gauntlet of political and magical trickery embodied by her new supporting cast. All that sounds amazing and great, right? This is a great setting for Danny to like really expand out from all of her themes from a Game of Thrones. So what's what's the problem with Karth? Well, Jeff, <laughs> unfortunately the best way for me to get into it is to bring up a subject that will make a red-blooded American like yourself very uncomfortable, and that's drugs. It's not my fault. It's impossible to talk about <laughs> Karth without talking about drugs, because drugs are what Karth is made of. I'm not talking purely about the House of the Undying. That's just where the influence becomes explicit. I'm talking about the undeniable fact that weed and psychedelics are at the heart of fantasy as a genre. I know it hurts. I know, Jeff, you wish that the people spray-painting Frodo lives on the subway walls were like 4-H guys with perfect haircuts. <laughs> of course, but they like weren't. Myself. They weren't. They were hippies, and the hippies were high. And, and Karth is George poking fun at that with love. Like, you think about Tolkien or Frank Herbert, and they're, they're kind of, you know, squares. And I say that with love, but they're very kind of like sober, mm -hmm. stuffy, professorial men who I imagine their indulgence is like, you know, a glass of port on a Thursday evening. And then, but that's, that's not the people they were writing for. And that's not the people who seized on Lord of the Rings in Dune. But what we're seeing here is a kind of a generational thing where George is a member of that audience, the psychedelic hmm. audience who glommed onto those books. So for him, I feel like Karth is practically like an in-joke. Like he's poking his elbow in the ribs of like his fellow Dungeons and Dragons stoners saying, hey, you know this kind of place. This is the kind of place we read about. This is like a, 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 a giant lava lamp the size of a city. That's what Karth is. You get all these dazzling colors and not only that, but the colors are, like, crowding around Danny as if they're moving. Yeah, this is 100% an acid flashback <laughs> on George's part. The selling point of psychedelic drugs is that they'll take you to other worlds. And you can see the appeal of that for fantasy writers and readers. George has talked about fantasy as an escape from the mundane, an escape from reality. But this is not accurate. What these drugs actually do is the inverse. They bring enchantment to everyday things. They transform a leaf into a representation of the divine. There's a reason substances like these are associated with religious awakenings the world over. They make you see God in everything. Some of my favorite art, and yours too, Jeff, and dear listener at home, <laughs> is impossible to imagine without the influence of these drugs. Not because they make you smart and creative, they can do quite the opposite if you're not careful with them, but because they offer a different way of looking at the world. Moreover, an entire wave of pop culture sprang up around these drugs in the 1960s and 70s, and that's had a massive influence in every area of American culture, even if you never touched one of these drugs. And Karth, I think, just stands in for all of that. But one problem with both these drugs and the art influenced by them is how often the insight does not translate to the sober mind. Like, sometimes the sober mind is transported to this enchanted view of the everyday, but sometimes the sober mind looks at the psychedelic mind and goes, 
yeah, dude, that's a leaf. <laughs> I've seen leaves. It's not that special. And the same goes for the arts. Sometimes you get like the Matrix, which, you know, brilliantly updates the psychedelic ideas from the 60s into like kind of the more techno disaffected alienation of the 1990s. But sometimes you get like the scene in American Beauty where the kid's filming the plastic bag on the wind because he thinks it's so deep. (laughs) It's easy to get lost in your imagery and forget everything else. And I feel like that's what happened in Karth. George got really into the visuals and the themes, and he neglected the bones of plot progression and character development for Daenerys. There's no urgency in Karth. Nothing happens like it matters. There's no momentum. There's no narrative thrust. And there's no like grand sweeping transformation of Danny's character like there is in A Game of Thrones and A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons, all her other storylines. Like you get to the ends of all those books, like end of A Game of Thrones. Wow, Danny's brought the dragons back. She's taken the callison on her own right. End of Storm of Swords. Wow, Danny's staying in Slaver's Bay. Let's see how this revolution turns out. End of A Dance with Dragons. Danny goes, you know what? To hell with that. <laughs> I'm burning it down. I'm going home. End of A Clash of Kings. Danny goes, well, that sure was interesting. Guess we should leave, folks. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I, there is no narrative thrust for Karth, and that really makes it unsatisfying, ultimately. And, you know, more than just a narrative thrust in Karth, there's nothing, there's, well, there's nothing. There's little that about her visit to Karth that really connects with the character beats of her story moving forward. Yeah, I, I get it. In plot terms, the Karthian don't disappear altogether from the narrative. Danny will hear about the Karthian warlocks are after her in A Storm of Swords and in A Dance of Dragons. Then she's going to meet up with Zaru again in that dance chapter, her third chapter, and Karth will eventually go to war with Danny because she rejects their offer of the ships. And I guess if I'm being extremely fair, because I'm the fairest person I know, <laughs> she's learning to distrust people who seem nice and give her stuff. Though, didn't she learn that lesson already from Illyrio and from the wine merchant who attempted to poison her back in A Game of Thrones, right? <sighs> I mean, take the example of Khal Drogo and the Dothraki from this chapter. As we're going to talk about towards the end of this podcast, she thinks about her experiences with Drogo, whether she be regarded as a conqueror or liberator by Westeros. Now, she doesn't simply want to do to Westeros as Drogo did to the Lazarine. Danny is consistently reflecting on her experiences among the Dothraki back from A Game of Thrones and gains some pretty, char- some pretty critical character progression as a result of it. That's not the same for Karth. It really, really isn't. You know, I was thinking about this chapter. Car- Danny sees slaves and hears that slaves are being sold in Karth in the market. The witnesses that Zaro's manse is essentially inhabited almost entirely by slaves. So come storm and Danny, Danny's experience in Astapor, this seems like a likely spot where Danny's going to be connecting her experiences in Karth to Astapor, right? No, wrong. She connects the slavery she witnesses in Astapor to her personal experiences with Viserys and Illyrio from A Game of Thrones. Do you know what it's like to be sold, Squire? I do. My brother sold me to Khal Drogo for the promise of a golden crown. Well, Drogo crowned him in gold, though not as he had wished. And I, my son and stars made a queen of me, but if he had been a different man, it might have been much otherwise. Do you think I've forgotten how it felt to be afraid? I mean, that's that's powerful shit, Rand. That's powerful shit coming from a Game of Thrones. And it's a powerful touchstone for Danny's view of slavery. George put a ton of work into doing all of the character work for Danny in a Game of Thrones. And that's simply not the case with Karth, but it, it really could have been. Danny's experiences of being sold into slavery, watching the Lazarine being violently oppressed into slavery, are the first parts of that arc. The second could have been Danny's experiences in Karth, unpacking how the wealth and all the glory and the grandeur of Karth, all the beautiful sights and smells she's witnessing are all built on slavery. That seems like it'd be really fucking powerful. That's something... And that's something, too, which would then resonate with the children's rhyme that she hears about from Barristan and Astapor. Bricks and blood built Astapor, and bricks and blood her people. It could have been the same for Karth. It could have been. 
The plot beats that are buried under that cosmic trippy surface once you get at them are just so threadbare and uninteresting and unmotivated. Danny just drifts along listlessly, ending up at the House of the Undying because, why not, <laughs> leaving the city at the end of the book because I guess it's time to do that now. And I get at some level that this is the point, that Karth is listless because getting everything you want all the time isn't rewarding, it's boring. More on that when we get to Danny 3 and Danny 4. But this shapelessness leaves Karth feeling half-baked and hollow, and our supporting cast really isn't helping matters. We're still not digging beneath the surface of the Dothraki, despite being repeatedly told that Danny has bonded with these people. At the end of A Game of Thrones, it was a big moment when she freed them as equals, and they stuck around after the dragon birth. She had that line about how they were hers, hers more than they ever were Drogo's. And then in the first chapter in this book, they walked into the wasteland together, and she was constantly dwelling on her responsibility for them, on how she could ensure their survival. Danny's story is all about flux, constant transformation. She's an irresistible force in search of an immovable object. And within that, her Kalisar is a constant. But all we get out of this relationship in this chapter and in the book as a whole is Danny bizarrely adopting the Carthine perspective to refer to the Dothraki as savages and admitting, oh, she has no idea what's going on behind their eyes. And there is an argument that this is just supposed to reflect alienation on Danny's part. It's not supposed to be alienation for the reader or represent George's perspective. It's just grounded in Danny's character. And in some parts of her story, I do think that's true. But here it does not hold water because, again, we are repeatedly, explicitly told that she has forged a significant bond with her Dothraki followers. So where is it right. in the text? It's not actually ever dramatized. Like you were saying, like the Recaro thing would be a perfect opportunity for it. And it's just neglected. It's left on the cutting room floor. And then there are Karth's three wise men. Well, two men and a woman. <laughs> and they are just boring. <laughs> Look, benefit of the doubt, as you were trying to be fair earlier, Piad, Zero, and Quaith are supposed to be archetypes more than complex psychologies. They are supposed to stand in for the paths they offer Danny. Zero is all about worldly wealth and getting everyone to come see you and marvel at you, Danny. And and Quaith is one of those those emissaries of the rising magical tide that we talked about before with Melisandre and Jojen Reed. We're going to be talking more about Jock and Hagar in that regard over the next couple of Arya chapters. These people who are coming onto the stage to say, hey, something big is happening. Magic is on the rise. Maybe you don't realize it yet, oh, chosen one POV protagonist, but something serious is happening here and you better pay attention. Piet Pri is basically also that, but like with uh, an institution behind him and... Quaith isn't being exactly honest, but Piet Pri is obviously being much more deceptive. So you have those archetypes and they stand in for those paths. I get that. That's fine in concept. The problem for me is that these three are too muddled and passive to act as proper archetypes in this regard. There's not enough tension or threat surrounding any of them. I just rewatched one of my favorite movies, The World's End, the third of uh, the Edgar Wright trilogy. And that's a movie very self-consciously made up of archetypes within patterns. But each archetypal character is built from consistent details that clearly communicate their place in the pattern and how it fits with each escalating plot beat. Piat, Zero, and Quaith offer such simplistic temptations with so little payoff. Like, they technically compete with each other, but not with any great verve or drama, and it's never effectively framed like Danny has to choose between one or the other. Like, when she goes to the House of the Undying, Zero just, like, sips a martini and goes, oh, that's probably a bad idea, good luck. <laughs> like, he doesn't try to stop her. And so that it doesn't work in terms of Danny being forced to choose between these paths because it never really feels like she's being forced to choose. Right. And in this chapter two, we we're talking about this in our, our pre-episode that we do every every week for our small council and our High Lords and Ladies patrons. We were talking about how, like, in, in this chapter, like, the, the characters, these side characters are just kind of flitting about the narrative. They 
leave for reasons that are unknown to us. They return for reasons that are unknown to us. Then they leave again. They don't explain what they're doing. They're just like, bye, Danny. We're out. We're leaving. Bye. Good to get to good to chat with you here for a second. I've dropped a little bit of wisdom on you. Now I'm leaving. Okay, gone. Now I'm back. Oh, gone again. Back. That's how every scene ends. And it, it does feel very archetypal and old school. It reminds me of like Gandalf in The Hobbit where he's just leaving constantly and like Tolkien later backfold. Oh, like, yeah, that's he's dealing with Sauron. Yep, that's what he was doing. But like in context <laughs> of writing The Hobbit, it's just like a, a fairy tale structure and like you can't have Gandalf there all the time or he'll just solve every problem for the hobbits. But it, the way Tolkien was writing, it's like it didn't, the framework he was using, the mythological framework, like coming up with a grounded character motivation for Gandalf to be leaving just like isn't the point for him mm-hmm. at that time. And I feel like George is drawing from that here. But like at least Gandalf like clearly advances the plot every time he shows up, and these three just don't even do that. A user on Twitter by the name of um, I'll fuck up the name, but it's at Kalikovo put it really well. So I I'd asked a, on Twitter about like why Karth is, exists and what's what's the purpose of it, and why it doesn't really work for me. And uh, just to read two of their points because they had a ten point Twitter thread, which is really really good, and I think they correlate really strongly with what you're saying about Karth and about these these characters. In which this user says, Karth itself we learn about in the world book style narration. Its political complications, e.g., the conflicts between the pureborn, the guilds, etc don't have any bearing on the story. Karth is a collection of details that don't add up to any greater meaning. Second point, in terms of storytelling, it's conveyed kind of voice of God style with no sense of, is this true? Whose account can we trust? Presumably, Danny will learn about Karthian politics from Zaro, but even though he's trying to play her, we never really get a sense of that he might be tr- untrustworthy. And I'd only add that Quaith similarly frustrates me in similar lines with the constant cryptic lines that seem to only exist for fans to speculate about, ooh, what does Quaith talking about here? What does this possibly mean? What is the deeper meaning behind all of this? But it doesn't really have much bearing to Danny in, in the story, and that's really bad on George's part, sorry to say. But I, of course, I'll leave my full thoughts for Quaith to Danny's third chapter in a dance, third chapter in a Clash of Kings, because that's where we're going to get Quaith doing more cryptic shit, which I don't like. I, I really don't like Quaith. I'm sorry. I apologize. I don't. I don't apologize. We'll both have more to say specifically about these three as they develop or don't develop over the next couple of Danny chapters. But the overall point is that, yeah, Danny just kind of drifts among them like a dandelion spore on the wind with very little of the character stakes you need for an effective story about temptation and power. She tries to bribe some people with Zero, which we are told fails in a kind of blunt and uninteresting way, and then she shrugs and goes to find enlightenment with Piat Pri and the Undying, which also fails, and then she <laughs> shrugs and leaves town, and somewhere in there Quaith, Quaith is cryptic and annoying as is her way. You compare this to Arya at Harrenhal, or John at Craster's Keep, where George embeds ethical struggles in a well-defined setting and secondary cast and turns them back on the POV characters in ways that build on their previous struggles going into these settings. Danny and Karth is just weak tea by comparison to this great work being done elsewhere in A Clash of Kings. So much of, of what clashes, is, as we talked about in Arya and Tyrion chapters, is George doing a really good job of showing how a nobility ensconced in the high towers of power is navel-gazing about the nature of power, shadows on a wall, and how to wield such power. While the foundation of that high tower the High Lords are dwelling in is a rotting foundation. It's found in the form of brutalized and murdered small folk in the Riverlands and Heron Hall and in King's Landing, too. And while Danny will come to see the lies and corruption of the Thirteen, the Pureborn, the Warlocks, and the literal rotting heart in the House of the Undying, it's all at the 10,000-foot level with no attention paid to what's going on beneath those high walls, those manses in the Warlock's Palace of Dust. It's Danny as the Dragon Queen reacting to another ruling structure with no appreciation for the broader scope of the whole scope, rather. It's 
just not how George does Westeros with its intense focus on how the game of Thrones is played and how it affects the small folk at the bottom. And it makes for a lesser story for reasons that we'll unpack towards the end of this chapter. But, you know, this chapter is not simply about Carthus' setting and about these side characters that Danny is meeting. There is some plot elements that are going on in this chapter. There are some promising character notes for Danny here. She takes Jorah's advice when it's good. He tells her that Karth's sweet smell exists to cover up the foul, which, to give Jorah Mormont some rare credit on the Nauticast, is 100% true. But Danny also knows in the wake of the Lynesse backstory in Danny 1 that Jorah is interested in her romantically. As she says, she is struggling to get him to see her as a queen, a leader, instead of either a virginal child or an available sex object, and that fits really well into her developing character arc and into the themes of A Clash of Kings as a whole. That whole thing that Danny's talking about, how Jorah looks at her as both a child and as a object of romantic affection, it's similar to how it can even be seen as a prism for how Littlefinger is viewing Sansa Stark in the story oh, yeah. in Clash, Storm, mm-hmm. and especially in Feast in the Winds of Winter sample chapter. Starting in game and really picking up in, in Clash and Storm, Littlefinger has a similar relationship with Sansa Stark, anointing himself as her father figure slash actual father. Remember that he poses as, as, Elaine's, as Elaine Stone's father in, in, in A Storm of Swords. While at the same time, he's taking on that creepy finger persona as George R. R. Martin explained, where he says that Peter's feelings towards Sansa are not entirely paternal. They're partially paternal because Littlefinger has very mixed feelings here. I mean, sometimes he sees Sansa, and she's the daughter he never had. The daughter he might have had with Kat if he and Kat had been married as he dreamed when he was a small boy living in her father's castle and was so madly in love with her. At other times, he detaches himself from that, and he's less Peter, and he's more Littlefinger. And she's just another piece in the game. And yet, at other times, she's not Kat's daughter. She's like young Kat. She ha- she's his teenage fantasies returned again. And then his feelings toward her are sexual and romantic. You know, that immoral dynamic between that Littlefinger tries to exploit with Sansa is similar for, da- for Jorah and Danny's relationship. The, the kind of additional layer of fucked upness for Jorah is how he uses his role as a pseudo-father figure to Danny to urge her not to trust other men because he really only wants to be the only man in Danny's life, the one who gets to bang her. And that's not to say that Jorah isn't giving Danny good advice in this chapter, like, like you were saying. It's just that his purpose in advising Danny not to trust are entirely wrapped up in his desire to bang her. It's creepy as shit, and that's who Jorah Mormont is as a character. Absolutely, and Danny is increasingly aware of that, but in a, a good sign for her leadership arc here, she's also aware of the limits of her perception, sending the Dothraki out to explore the city and find out what she doesn't know about even though that doesn't really pay off. <laughs> Acknowledging that she has no clue what Quaithe is up to, which also doesn't really pay off. And Danny knows precisely how to talk to both Zero and Pia, keeping them at arm's length while still suggesting that they have interests in common. Specifically, she plants the idea of them helping her to go to Westeros and take the Iron Throne. And that runs under the whole chapter, from Jorah ditching his Dothraki guard for Westerosi clothes early on in the chapter, hint hint, <laughs> to the news of Robert's death at the end. When Danny is finally left alone, which is a rare state in her chapters, she goes for a swim in the marble pool in Zero's palace, washing off the desert. It's another rebirth. And Danny gets some space to consider what she wants to do, who she wants to be, and it's easily the best part of the chapter. It links Danny's story with the political and military questions in A Clash of Kings beyond just the prophetic imagery that we've been talking about. What will it mean, exactly, for her to go home? Westeros has become a very fraught topic for her, filtered through Viserys' nostalgia for it, but also Danny's changed perspective on her big brother, as well as her time with the Dothraki. Checking in with Danny's internal compass regarding home is a great way of assessing how she has and hasn't changed since A Game of Thrones. Her ends haven't changed, but the means are giving her pause in two interrelated ways. One, she doesn't have the power to take the Iron Throne. Her Kalasar is tiny and so are her dragons. Two, 
Even if she had Drogo's Kalasar, everything Danny saw in A Game of Thrones has her worrying that her invasion could be one giant war crime. Later in this chapter, she compares Westeros descending into civil war after Robert's death to the Kalasar splintering after Drogo's fall. George here is calling back to the association between the warrior kings Robert and Drogo he made throughout Book 1, paralleling the Western and Eastern stories. So Danny is setting herself up as the one to rebuild from the ashes of Robert's united Westeros, just as she birthed dragons from the ashes of Drogo's united Kalasar. But she's haunted by the idea that she might be the one responsible for burning down Westeros, because, in part, she was implicated in the violent descent of the Kalasar at the end of Book 1. She's the one who invited the monster in, so to speak, with Miri Mazdur. And it reminds me, as it's reminded many people, of Paul Atreides in Dune, another exiled noble reborn in the desert as a prophetic figure, experiencing visions of the galactic jihad to be waged in his name after he comes to power, and struggling to avoid that even as he senses its inevitability, destiny snapping into place around him whether he likes it or not. Danny genuinely wants to create a kingdom of happy, laughing people. But the ironic trap, the tragic structure for her here, is that even though she's desperate to stave off fire and blood in her future, it's waiting for her in the past. Because her standard for what a good country looks like is Westeros under her father, Mad King Eris. <laughs> and hey, those small folk from Arya Six last week would agree with her. But primarily this stands out, I think, as a major sign from George that Danny's ignorance about Dad will spell disaster for her. Just like how she keeps referring to Viserys as the rightful king who was unfortunately dead when she knows better than that. We also have in this chapter two that she starts to group Ned Stark and Tywin Lannister together as the usurper's dogs. And that might give us a glimpse of things to come. You know, Ned and Tywin are nothing alike, but her POV is understandable, like I was saying in the synopsis, given that her only two points of reference for Ned by a clash of kings Danny to are Viserys and Jorah, two men that hated Ned Stark for uniquely wrong reasons. But maybe Danny wouldn't regard Ned as one of the, quote, usurper's dogs after Sir Barristan Selmy reveals to Danny in A Dance of Dragons that, sure, Ned kind of played a role in Aerys' downfall, but he wasn't involved in the murders of Elia, Rhaenys, and Aegon, and furthermore attempted to dissuade Robert from sending the assassin after Danny. Right? No, wrong. Lannister Stark, what's the difference, Danny says. Viserys used to call them the usurper's dogs. If a child is set upon by a pack of hounds, it doesn't matter which one tears out his throat. All the dogs are just as guilty. Your Danny's assignment of mass guilt is a point that George R. R. Martin is really going to explore come Astapor, Marine, and Storm of Swords. And boy, is that really going to be a fascinating discussion when we come to that come, you know, a year and a half from now when we get to those chapters from A Storm of Swords. But I was thinking, you know, coming on the heels of Seasons 8's The Bells, Danny's assignment of equal culpability regardless of actual culpability, it reads like a bit of an exclamation point for how Danny will regard King's Landing come a dream of spring. I mean, we'll talk about this more in the foreshadowing grammar portion of this episode, but might a Danny aided by a vengeful Tyrion view the people of King's Landing who cheered the usurper's dragon as, quote, equally treasonous as those who stole her throne and possibly deserving of a traitor's fate? I just leave it as a question for you guys to ponder and consider. I don't want to get yelled at. I've been yelled at enough about this this point. But that's pretty far in the future. For now, Danny is wrestling with her post-dragon birth identity and whether that gives her a unique place in this strange and exotic world. And Danny's attempting to resolve all these issues by putting her faith in destiny, prophecy, the signs from the gods that she was made to overcome the emptiness and turmoil within her. And this is why I wouldn't go so far as to frame Daenerys Targaryen as purely a character study in narcissistic entitlement, as many, many people have argued. First of all, she did bring fucking dragons back. <laughs> I would have a swelled head, too. And in this chapter specifically, she seizes on the idea that the comet led her to Karth, not because she just really inherently believes that everything has to be about the stormborn mother of dragons, 
but because it gives structure to her uncertain future. I don't think you can fully understand Danny without thinking about what exile has done to her psychology, just like it did to Viserys. To make her dream come true, Karth has to be a bridge, a way of getting from point A, Dothraki and the dragons, to point B, a happy Westeros of which I am queen. After all, this is a city of dreams, right? A city alive with all the colors of the rainbow, a city where everything you could possibly want in life is on display just waiting for you. And then Jorah seems to confirm this line of thinking by showing up with Kahuru Mo and the news of Robert's death. It's just like another welcoming gift from the city. See, Danny, you were right. The gods brought you to Karth to proclaim that your nemesis, Robert Baratheon, whose shadow has hung over you since your birth, is dead. This is your moment. It all comes together in Danny's mind. Karth is her launching pad, an egg from which she can hatch, all the raw materials she needs for her perfect kingdom. Jorah, of course, stresses logistics, but Danny is caught up in the narrative unfolding within her, and we will see that push and we'll see that push and pull at work in the rest of Danny's A Clash of Kings chapters between this narrative inside her and the material realities of the world outside her. So again, what's the problem with that? That seems like a fine story and character structure. In part, it's what you said earlier, that there are some elements left dangling sloppily with no payoff. And that's exacerbated by how few chapters we get in Karth, only four, which only supports the idea that George kind of threw this storyline together on the fly. It's also in part the prose in this closing scene, which is not the best in the series. Outside <laughs> her walls, dusk was settling over Karth, but a sun had risen in Danny's heart. This is kind of a clunky metaphor. <laughs> Same thing in the opening line of Danny's next chapter. The drapes kept out the dust and heat of the streets, but they could not keep out disappointment. <laughs> not not the best. But I think I think the largest problem here is that these character beats feel redundant in the wake of how Danny's story ramped up and concluded in book one. The big takeaway here is that Danny's going to try and go back to Westeros. Well, yeah. <laughs> of course that's what she's going to do. We already knew that. Again, I find myself agreeing with Jorah Mormont. Not much has actually changed here. And that sense of a story running in place extends to the whole of Danny's time in Karth. Now, the counter-argument goes that what Danny takes away from Karth is an obsessive sense of destiny. The House of the Undying prophecies, the way everyone treats her, the aura of magic and prophecy, all of it convinces her of her importance, and so you couldn't have big moves like Dracarys and all that follows without it. But again... Danny already brought back dragons at the end of the last <laughs> book. I think she already knows she's important. Her messianic status is a given going into this book. It is not something you need to prove. You sure are something, Daenerys Targaryen. Isn't much of a revelation for a character who spent her last few chapters in the previous book strapped to a rocket aimed at the heart of the sun. George frames Karth as a gorgeous surface covering up the nothing at the heart of it, much like Zero's vault in season two of the show. And I wonder if that's a subtle confession on his part that this storyline exists to paper over a hole, a sudden gap in Danny's story, now that events in Westeros are going to take far longer to settle down for her than he originally intended. So Karth is a beautiful diversion for not only Danny, but the reader. And I think within the scope of A Song of Ice and Fire as a whole, it does not amount to much more than a side quest. You're right. It, this is a side quest of a story. There are important points for Danny to grapple with, specifically at the House of the Undying chapter. But here in Danny 2 and also in Danny 3, we're not learning much besides that Danny is special. In Danny 3, we're going to get that scene where there is a great fire ladder that is being built up to the guy can climb up to the top into the clouds, which is a great scene. And it also is speaking to how magic has returned to the land. But we're like, yeah, Fucking dragons were born at the end of the last of the in the end of a Game of Thrones. We know that magic has returned in some sense. There's a gigantic prophetic comet that was flying east that Danny followed to get to Karth. 
we know that there is something special and magical going on in the story. We learn this from other characters besides Danny. We learn it from Stannis. We learn it from Bran. We learn it from Arya. And we learn it from Jack and Agar. All of these characters are pointing that way. In those other storylines, it's a new beat. Like, there wasn't magic um, for, for Maester Crescent before. There right. wasn't magic in Arya's life before. There was a hinted magic in Bran's life before, but it was buried in his dreams. No one brought it up in the waking life the way Jojen Reed is about to do. But in Danny's storyline, this is a repeat beat. There's already magic in Essos. There's already magic in her storyline. So it feels like a downgrade in a way that, like, like the shadow babies are objectively less of a big deal than the dragons. But in context of, like, the Catelyn, Renly, Stannis, Davos storyline, it's a major impact because there was no hint of anything like that before. In Danny, we've gone from dragons to, look at that fiery ladder. Isn't that compelling? Not compared to Dragonbirth. No, it's <laughs> just not. It feels like a downgrade. Whereas it feels like the next natural step is Storm of Swords when you put those dragons to work. And I feel like George kind of struggled with, with the interim. So moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork, obviously the big one here, it comes about Danny talking about her invasion of Westeros. And the question of, will Danny in fact reduce King's Landing to a blackened ruin full of unquiet ghosts? <laughs> as she pledges not to do in this chapter. And I think that's an important beat to bring up, that she specifically pledges not to. And some people have taken that as evidence that she won't. Whereas I think it might be more like, you know part of the tragic structure wherein she ends up doing exactly the things she pledged never to do. Like, I think you see that on a smaller scale with Pentos, like where she says in A Dance with Dragons, no, I'll never give Pentos over to the Tattered Prince for any arrangement. But then Barrison kind of makes that deal behind her back at the end of the book, and Danny's coming back with fire and blood in the next book, so as, as you and I have theorized, she's probably going to end up making good on that deal. It's, 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 it's part, of, part of her overall structure in the same way that Tyrion ends up doing things as much as he's a, a villainous character in this book, he ends up doing things in dance. I don't think he would even consider doing in A Clash of Kings. It's, it's, it's all part of their development. I think some people look at Danny as a, as a static character, like the things she promises not to do here are going to be things she doesn't do later. I, I, for me, it's not out of character. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tragic reversal. And our friend Eliana has written a great essay about Danny as a, as a tragic character. And I think, that's, I think that's what this scene fits into. Yeah, it, you're right. And I think, too, when people make these dramatic statements that I will never do X, I will never do Y, I will never do Z, I will have no burnings, pray harder in in Ash's second chapter from A Dance of Dragons. Her third chapter opens up with Stannis burning people at the, you know, at the start of that chapter. So in the, in the sacrifice, burning people to R'hllor, burning people for their for their cannibalism. It, it really, it's a distinction without a difference, really. So, I mean, I, I think, like, ultimately what we see in Danny's story is is you're exactly correct because that is a tragic reversal i think we're seeing likely for danny going forward because there is a lot of groundwork and foreshadowing that george is placing into danny's arc into the setting into the prophetic dreams of destiny the fire she's going to light you know stuff like that that kind of speaks more to what's likely going to happen to danny's storyline for king's landing come likely towards the end of a dream of spring second point of foreshadowing remember all those glorious camels that welcomed danny into the city of karth well wouldn't you know it but in a dance with dragons dario reports that a quote core of karthian camelry is in the field marching with yunkai against daenerys and towards marine you know if i had to guess i mean i bet some of those same camel riders that welcomed danny into karth with such a plume are now riding to bring her down and are likely going to be fighting barasin and his marinese allies outside of karth you know fun fact for you guys who are really interested in this shit you know, horses don't typically like the smell of camels they 
that's why they're used on a battlefield. So this could really have a strong impact on Barris's use of cavalry outside of Marine at the uh, Battle of Fire. So I guess it's something we'll have to be looking out for come the Winds of Winter. It seems like the Battle of Fire is going to turn immediately and hard against the slavers. So this could be their one little area of resistance, similar to how when Stannis smashed the wildlings in a storm of swords, the one area where they were able to kind of form resistance to him was around the mammoths. Maybe it'll be mm. kind of similar to that. Or like these, this is the last stand for the slavers as they go down in the Battle of Fire. Yeah. The one kind of time I visibly perk up when I reread this chapter was whenever it mentions the Undying, because I do love the House of the Undying. And I think it is clear, even amidst the flurry of imagery that starts this chapter, George is setting up the Warlock's Den as the climactic location of Karth. When he, he has Zarazone Daxos warn Danny off, saying, oh, don't go there, the Palace of Dust, that's that's a scary place full of, full of lies and bones. So, like, that's George setting up, yeah. This is this is the the most important setting. Jorah going down to the docks to find some news is likely that point where Jorah sends his final missive to Varas as he admits to Danny in a storm of swords in Eris Six that he made one report to Varas from Karth, and Varas is later going to use that intelligence about Danny to mislead the Small Council in Tyrion's third chapter in a storm of swords, stating that a three-headed dragon has hatched in Karth. So. That's one of those fun things about Varys in A Storm of Swords is the information he's taking, he ends up manipulating it so that he could be easily dismissed, right? Oh, there's a three-headed dragon in Karth. Eh, don't worry about it. No, it's probably not true. Not probably a false bit of information. That's a cool way that George does storytelling across different locations is that the distortions kind of come in naturally, or in the case of Varys, they can come in very unnaturally. Varys knows exactly how to play it so to keep people in Westeros not taking Danny seriously for as long as he can. Because, of course, Varys is himself reacting with amazement and surprise to this news. He was not expecting Danny to end up with dragons. So he has to give himself time to learn how to play it. And, of course, we're going to see that play out over the, the books to come. One final bit of potential uh, foreshadowing and groundwork here is that Danny promises a great reward to Kahuro Mo when she returns to Westeros. And we know that his ship, the Cinnamon Wind, is now potentially taking Marwyn the Mage towards Daenerys after bringing Sam and Gilly... Uh, uh, all the way to Old Town. So are, are they going to cross paths again, thanks to Marwyn? Is there going to be a reward that, that Danny promised, or will there be no reward or some sort of hideously <laughs> ironic one? How do you think that's going to play out? I, yeah, that's one I don't have any real sense of how George is going to do that. I, I do think it's interesting that Kohoro Mo is, main, is still in the story of A Song of Ice and Fire and that he ends up interacting with major characters in the story. I, if I'm not mistaken... Is there, is there some sort of point in Davos's chapters where that's also mentioned that about the dragons in Karth or dragons in Essos and that information came from some sort of summer island ship or something like that? I'd have to look back at Davos's second chapter. Am I wrong about that? The information is about Danny. I don't remember if it's mentioned that it came from the cinnamon wind. I think at that point, like uh, news is coming, you know, kind of constantly from the east because you get to like Old Town and a Feast for Crows and they know and that's not from the cinnamon wind because it hasn't gotten there yet. So word has already spread all over Westeros about Danny by that point. Absolutely. So I think that a wrap out wraps up for Shadowing Gremlin for this chapter. For our greater discussion portion of this episode, Emmett and I are going to fix Karth for George R. R. Martin. So we're going to go back in so time. So kind to- and magnanimous of us, really. We have been known of being the kind, magnanimous people in the fandom, as everyone knows. And we're going to go back in time to 1997 or 1998, whenever George is writing Karth in A Song of Ice and Fire, and we're going to fix it here. So... How are we going to fix Karth? My idea for Karth is have it be based on something and have the Karthine as a people be based on something. So George says in a 2002 So Spake Barton, he says, I have tried to mix and match ethnic and cultural traits in creating my Im- imaginary fantasy peoples. So there are no direct one-for-one correspondences. The Dothraki, for example, are based in part on the Mongols, the Alans, and the Huns, but their skin coloring is Amerindian. The Karthine are an even more exotic hybrid, and offhand I don't recall where I got all the cuttings. 
Yeah. Okay. So basically, Carth the Carthine have no real basis or understanding. It just came from George's imagination. You know, I talked about how Carth has strong similarities to the architecture of Constantinople, but notice that it's the buildings, the walls, the gates, the colors, all of that scene setting is it's, it's good. It's a good foundation for constructing a distinct setting, but the foundation is never really advanced beyond basically the foundation and maybe some scaffold, scaffolding as well. Like you were saying earlier, George got lost in the image. And, you know, I've searched through a 3,241-page archive of everything extra-textual that George Robard has said about A Song of Ice and Fire. There are 27 references to Karth, 23 of which are about where Karth is exactly on the map. So where is it <laughs> located? Is it north or south? Is it near the free cities? Is it, you know, three of those references deal with the House of the Undying, and one references the one I cited above about the Karthine not really having really any idea where they came from. As much as George receives a lot of really fair criticism, as we're going to get into in A Storm of Swords, for his Orientalist portrayals of Slaver's Bay and his Orientalist portrayals of the Dothraki too, they were based on historical peoples and groups and get a lot of unpacking in A Game of Thrones, Storm of Swords, The Dance of Dragons, and some in The World of Ice and Fire too. Karth really doesn't get any kind of unpacking in the narrative or even in the world book or fucking anywhere. I mean, it's like Karth was entirely constructed in George's mind as a setting antagonist for Danny to react against without much thought being put into the city and the people itself. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I know, I know other settings and locations serve as setting antagonists for our POV characters. Harrenhal's we talked about last week for Arya, but for Karth, it's way, way too transparent. There's evidence, you know, in a 2015 interview with Elio Garcia and Linda Antonson, Elio Garcia reported that George Barton would, quote, not give us anything about Karth when they were writing The World of Ice and Fire. You know, the frame of the answer was in terms of spoilers, George R. Martin refused to divulge to Elio and Linda for The World Book. But I kind of wonder whether it's not so much that George didn't want to spoil events from The Winds of Winter, but rather that he didn't really have much backstory figure for Karth's history. Kind of feels that way. It's probably true. And that, that's fine. It's it's fine. It's fine. But it's really at odds of how George develops every other setting in the series. I mean, just look at the immense amount of history and backstory George imbues into every other region. Harrenhal is just immensely important. And the backstory is fleshed out among multiple point of view characters from Catelyn and Tyrion and Arya and Jaime. All these characters are interacting with Harrenhal. And that really gets to my main issue about Karth. We get no real sense of the place. What's the economic and social structure of Karth? I don't know. How are the people fed? With food, I guess? What crops are grown outside the city? If there are no crops, where is the food imported from? What's the history of the Carthian people? Where do all the slaves come from? How are they made slaves? What's going on with Carth? We don't know. We really, really don't know. So ultimately, my solution for Carth, make it feel like a real place, man. Make it feel like some place that I, is based on something historical, fantastical, something. Something. Just base it on something. I'm going to have to run in the opposite direction. My solution will come as no surprise. Introduce Euron Crozai in these chapters. We know George has already come up with him because he's mentioned repeatedly in the Theon chapters. And when Euron is introduced later in the series, he is tied to Carthine elements, the warlocks and their drug Shade of the Evening. Now, George might not have come up with those associations between Euron and, the, and Carth yet. But as we'll talk about when we get to Danny's last chapter in this book, there is a Carthine character named Urathon Nightwalker who is mentioned but unseen. And that name in retrospect sounds very much like a pseudonym for Euron. So I think you could both build on Karth's strengths and minimize its weaknesses by building Danny's time here around Urathan Nightwalker as the villain of this storyline. He is a character consistent with the trippy, intricate imagery of Karth, as well as the overall theme of attaining absolute power only for it, only for it to hollow you out from the inside. But his drive to actually use that power 
makes him more of an urgent, scary threat than any of the elements that exist within Karth as it stands, giving this storyline more of a dramatic build. So I say get rid of all three Karthian wise men and replace them with quote-unquote Urathon. <laughs> he retrieves Danny at the City of Bones, representing Euron's plans for the world. He puts her up and squires her around town like Zarazo and Daxos. He talks metaphysics and warns her off the rest of the city's residents like Quaith, and he offers to help her take the Iron Throne. And Danny's charmed, maybe even into him a little. He's not that different from Drogo, after all. <laughs> and at first, Urathon claims opposition to the warlocks. Maybe he uses lipstick to hide his blue lips. You know, that fits how men tend to dress in more sensual and luxurious ways in Karth. But he actually arranges Danny's failure to attain power via bribes and diplomacy in order to leave her nowhere to go but the House of the Undying. I think that could be more interesting than her failing with Zero just because, and then going to the House of the Undying just because, as it stands in canon. <laughs> And then it's not just the Undying waiting placidly for Danny at the end of her adventures through the Looking Glass. It's Urathon, revealing his intention to steal her dragons and throne. Drogon still burns the Undying, as he does in canon. Urathon escapes, and Team Danny flees his revenge at the end. Maybe Euron hires the Sorrowful Men, just like he does the Faceless Men later in the series. And you don't even have to reveal that Urathon is Euron Greyjoy if you don't want to commit to that at the time. You can just have him show up in A Feast for Crows and let the audience put it together by how they're described exactly the same. And this is very fanficy, I know. <laughs> but I think, I think it would make for a more focused and compelling arc in Karth and establish one of the series' main villains for later, especially in Danny's story. And it doesn't have to be Euron, but I think what you really need in Karth is some kind of threat, some stronger villain, something more urgent driving the plot forward for Danny. And I think uh, Karth as it stands just doesn't go in either of the directions we're talking about. It doesn't make it more politically grounded like you're saying. And I don't think it really seizes in a dramatic way on the cosmic imagery like you might get if you had Euron as the villain. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, you know, we have a good archetype or we have a good parallel story. And that's the story of Jack and Agar, another magical figure who was in Arya's storyline in A Clash of Kings. And then he changes his face in Arya's ninth chapter in A Clash of Kings. And then come a Feast for Crows, we encounter this magical alchemist type figure. Who is this guy? We couldn't possibly know unless we read Arya's chapters and saw that he has this same face that Arya left him with. And in a Clash of Kings, or rather, that Jack and left Arya with in a, in, at Harrenhal. So I think that about wraps up for this analysis of a Clash of Kings Daenerys 2. As always, thank you so much to everyone for listening, and thank you for our patrons for supporting us. As always, if you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. And check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight who was guided by voices, Sir Courtenay, what did the five fingers say to the face Penrose, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way, of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, Heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, and our newest High Lady, Lady Heather. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies, and welcome, Lady Heather. Absolutely. Thank you all very, very much. And of course, welcome to Lady Heather. Thank you for joining us. So join us next week for our 100th episode. Woo-hoo! Woo-hoo! Yeah, baby. 
it will be all about a Clash of Kings brand four in which the skeptic Maester Lewin and the true believer Jojen Reed both struggle to get the protagonist on their side. And because this is our 100th episode, it's going to be our next live episode. So tune in to our YouTube channel on February 10th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's going to be a perfect one for our 100th episode because the Classic Kings Brand 4 sums up so many of the great themes and great ideas that cut across the entire series. It's a perfect microcosm of everything. So can't wait.